Today is a celebration of the king's arrival. Uh, We have no idea what actual day of the year Christ was born, and that doesn't matter. We are simply wanting to give honor and glory to his name. Uh, And it is such a powerful story that we have, this birth of Christ. It's an amazing tale that is full of heart and life and love. I want to share with you in an article for Christianity Today, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote, I just read my four-year-old the story of the angel Gabriel meeting with Mary. I tried not to panic when she said, I don't believe that. Well, do you believe that God made you? Yes, I believe that. And do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. That he rose from the dead? Yes. After more gentle probing, it turned out it was really just the angel that she didn't buy. But McLaughlin wrote, nonetheless, my daughter isn't alone in her natural skepticism about the supernatural. When we stop to think about it, Christmas stretches our credulity. It becomes complete with an angel appearing, a virgin conceiving, a star shining, and heavenly host singing. How can rational, scientifically literate 21st century people like us believe such things when even a child finds them hard to take? Then she said, however, to believe in the God of the Bible who created the universe and not to believe in miracles is rather obtuse. It would be like my daughter believing her dad could make bread from scratch, which he can, but that he couldn't toast a Pop-Tart. In fact, if you are a Christian, you are already signed up to believe that the universe and everyone in it is God's handiwork. Physicist Jonathan Fang said, what is truly amazing about the Christmas faith is the idea that God made the universe from quarks to galaxies but at the same time cared enough about us to be born a human being. To come down, to die and be crucified in the person of Jesus, and to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. McLaughlin concluded, Christians believe in Christmas and all its supernatural glory because miracles aren't hard for God. And indeed they aren't. She's absolutely correct. We believe because miracles aren't hard for God. But today, we're going to take a look at the Christmas story a little bit differently than normal. Uh, We're going to look at the truth behind the idea of God's ability to work miracles of Christmas. And so we're going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Not the whole story, but would you stand as we... Look at these words together and wonder in them. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joys that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. God bless the reading. See, in our text, Luke wrote about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. And as we look closely at the text, we're going to clearly see that the sovereign God was working in the birth of our Lord and Savior. God's sovereignty is, in fact, the truth that He is Creator and Lord. And as Creator and Lord, He doesn't find miracles hard. So today we're going to look at this story and find the ways that God's sovereignty is manifest. The different ways God guided this miracle. In the very first one, we see God's hand using a secular ruler in fulfilling a prophecy about Messiah's birth. Now folks, I know there are times I get excited and you don't exactly understand why this is one of those moments. And I hope that you will get it by the time I'm through. You see, the truth was, with Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Well, folks, Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, about 70 miles from the predicted place of the Messiah's birth. Uh, They had no reason to be in Bethlehem. And today, 70 miles doesn't sound like much to us. We jump in the car, we go. But 70 miles... It's not an easy trek to make, Uh, particularly when one of the passengers (laughs) is an expectant mom about to give birth. They had no reason to be where God's prophet had prophesied the Messiah would be born. But God took care of it. He took care of it through a secular leader who wasn't even Jewish. He was the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And he called for a census to, to be taken. Now, the, the rule of going to the place of one's family origin was echoed in another census that Augustus had done in another country. So he passes a rule. We don't know why, what prompted him, what made him think, but we know that God was moving. With this act, God guided Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. A Roman emperor had no idea he was playing a role in history completely unexpected. Folks, 
this one element of the, this story reminds us that our God is on the throne. Now, I want to try to make this as clear as I can. I do not believe that the sovereignty of God means God causes everything to happen. God doesn't cause me to sin. James is very clear about that. We can't say God tempted us because God tempts no man. God doesn't cause war and hatred and bitterness and prejudice and all the different things that mark us in a terrible light. But it does affirm a major truth of our faith. You see, God was not the God of the deist movement of the Enlightenment period in the modern area. If you're not familiar with deists, deists basically taught God was a divine clockmaker and the universe was his clock. He created it, he winded it up, put it on the mantle, and then walked away. He doesn't have any direct contact with that clock anymore. He set up natural law to guide it and to give it direction. But he had no contact until one day the world would wind down and God would come instead. But the Word of God reveals is a God who is active within his world. Actively in the world. He actually became part of it. That phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, is important for us to get. Because it's the truth. God became a man that we might have life. That we might have hope. And so, today, on this Christmas Day, let us rejoice in the knowledge that God is leading the ultimate course of the world. And folks, this is cause for Advent joy, if ever there is one. God is moving. And what this tells me, and it's very hard for us to understand this at times. When all the burdens and weights of life come crashing down, it's hard to remember. But what this declares is we are not alone. That God is actively moving in our lives, drawing us to a place where we can be and should be. That God is moving and one day the Lord of creation will bring His creation to its fulfillment, its ultimate purpose. So God was moving. And folks, we need to remember this. We forget this. We forget this when our candidate isn't elected. We forget this when there's a pandemic that comes. We forget this when so many different things happen. While God is not causing He's moving, and He's working, and He does not abandon us. Well, another example of God's hand and movement. We see God's hand moving away from the expectations of Messiah's birth. God just turned everything upside down. This was not the way it was supposed to happen. I can guarantee you not a single New Testament era person in Judea, no first century Judean would ever have imagined that God was going to do this. What do I mean? The commoner in the first century would have expected the Messiah to be born in a palace. After all, their most common idea of what Messiah would be would be 
the perfect king in the line of David to sit on the throne in Jerusalem one more time and bring righteousness to the world. He was a king. That's what they expected of him. They saw Messiah only in terms of a political righteous reign of a king. They saw Messiah as the one who would finally get rid of Rome. And the people of God would never be under someone else's thumb again. Such a king surely would have come recognizable as royalty. Such a king had to have been born into a prominent righteous family. He should have been born to a a godly king to begin with. But he was going to come. And they were expecting something very specific. A Messiah who would run the enemies of the people of God out forever. And that's not what happened at all. In fact, when we look at the birth narrative, we discover that Jesus' birthplace actually foreshadowed the truth that he was not the kind of king people expected. Where he is born tells us a lot of truth about how God upended that expectation. Instead of a birth in a royal household, there was no place for him in the inn. Now, I love nativity scenes. Like the one we have in front of us. I I love them. They're fun. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They bring joy to me. But folks, this is not the inner Scrooge coming out on me. They are probably wrong. It's very likely that it was not a wood shed that Jesus was sent to, but a cave. And he was laid in a manger, which was a feeding trough. But the Bible doesn't mention any animals there at all. So very likely, the cattle weren't lowing, waking up the baby Jesus. And we even know the wise men. The wise men show up after the event of the birth. We're told they come when Jesus and his family are in a house. So while this brings everything together in a wonderful visual, these are the things that happened with Jesus, let's not set a timetable. The truth was, Jesus was born unwelcomed by the world. And it doesn't just end there. Later on in his life, during his ministry, Again in the book of Luke in chapter 9. Jesus said of himself, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus wasn't born to establish an earthly kingdom. That wasn't why he came. That wasn't what he was doing. Instead he was born to reach a world with something greater. And not just the people of Israel, not just the Jewish people. He was born to bring something greater to all peoples, 
All kindred, every tribe, every tongue, the song sang. Salvation. Entrance into the family of God. Being welcomed into the very kingdom of God. That is why He came. And that's why God, again, is moving in a way folks would not expect. Because He had His purpose in mind. Not the expectations of people. Let us rejoice that the king came to break the power of sin. His very name, Jesus, is a Greek form of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. His name pointed to who he was that revealed his ultimate purpose. Now, one day in His second advent, when our Lord comes back, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a baby born in a manger, but King of kings and Lord of lords, God's kingdom will be established for all to see. But for now, we look at the birth of the Christ child and we know that He was born for a very specific purpose. I've told you before, I don't really remember how old I was, but I was probably way too young to have this thought, but that's me. It occurred to me once, the moment we are born, we begin to die. Not a very cheerful thought for a child, is it? The folks, Jesus was born to die. To live a perfect life. To die a sacrificial death. That the grace of God could be a reality for us. So I love this story. I love that God chooses a manger. I love that God chooses a couple who were poor. How do we know that Mary and Joseph were poor? When they went to dedicate him eight days after his birth in the temple... They dedicated him with a a sacrifice of two turtle doves. Which was the sacrifice meant for those who could not pay the full price. We have reason to celebrate. Because this little baby, born in a way that most of the world would never know about, truly was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we see one more move of God's hand. We see God's hand announcing Messiah's birth to outcasts. And this is very important. Uh, This actually picks up a theme that will go all throughout the book of Luke. If they could imagine the King Messiah being born in the manger, I guarantee you, No one could have imagined a multitude of angels actually coming to shepherds. Well, maybe I should clarify that. There would be some who could imagine angels coming to shepherds to slay them, to judge them. But this? You see, there's something very amazing about the Word of God. There's an interesting duality in the way God's people have looked at shepherds. In the Old Testament, 
we find in Psalm 23 a declaration, the Lord is my shepherd. And the whole psalm talks about the way God takes care of His sheep, guiding them to pastures and bringing them through the valley of the shadow of death and taking care of their enemies. It's a beautiful poem written by Israel's greatest king, Varnun, David, who was a shepherd before he was a king. And from that moment on, the image was used. Israel's kings were seen to be shepherds over the flock of Israel. They were supposed to take care of them and provide for them and protect them. Now the reality, the kings of Israel and Judah were not very good shepherds. But there was a time when the word shepherd would even be used with God. But there came a point in time when shepherds were seen as outcasts. They were seen that way in the minds of everybody who considered themselves godly. Alan Carr writing about Luke 28, uh, 8 through 20, to 8-20, uh, focuses on the story of the angels. And he says, my favorite of all the passages that deal with the Christmas story, it deals reveals God's love for the most common and most sinful of men. These shepherds were just living their lives, doing what they needed to do to survive, and they experienced life-changing, eternity-altering grace. They were visited by the heavenly messengers. They met Jesus and their lives were never the same again. They came away with a new song of praise in their lips and on their hearts. Now, these men were shepherds. It didn't matter that they might well have been raising lambs to be sacrificed in the temple. They themselves were social outcasts. Their work kept them away from the temple weeks at a time. The nature of their work, the taking care of livestock, caused them to be ceremonially defiled most of the time. As they moved about the country, tending their flocks, they became known as thieves. You can't trust them. In fact, some of the writers of uh, Jewish legation that isn't found in the Word of God suggested they were so unreliable, so untrustworthy, they could not be called as witnesses in a court of law. You can't trust a shepherd. They were just dirty, defiled sinners. He writes, these men had no hope, no one even, not even the religious elite cared for them. They were lost and destined to hell. The reality, my friends, these shepherds represented the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. The very first good news, the very first Noel came to outcasts. And so the irony of all this, the announcement of the Messiah's birth did not come to kings. It did not come to nobles. And even if you do 
believe that the Magi's were kings, as our song declared. The, the scripture doesn't actually call them kings. And again, they came after the birth. There were no wealthy, important people at that manger. God chose dirty, defiled shepherds. You see, throughout the book of Luke, we see that Messiah had come to serve especially common folk. Throughout the book, you will find all kinds of undesirables at the feet of Jesus. It's a running theme. Jesus had compassion for Gentiles. Unheard of. One of the favorite nicknames for Gentiles in first century Palestine was dog. And people, Jewish folks, didn't have Pomeranians. Dogs were pariah. He had compassion, maybe even worse, on Samaritans who had an ancestry that could be linked back to Abraham but had left it behind as they intermarried uh, and as they deny most of the books of the Bible. He had compassion on women who were seen by most of society as property. He had compassion on children. Sometimes treated as the lowliest part of society on tax collectors. Jewish people who bid for the right to levy taxes on their own brothers. So you can figure out how well they were loved. Over and over again. Now folks, we need to be real here. In first century Palestine, you and I, we would have been outcasts. We would have been the outcasts undeserving of the love of God. And that would have been based on one thing and one thing alone. We were Gentiles. And therefore, we are sinners. We would have been the outcasts. Now, before we get too haughty at them thinking that we're outcasts, before we think, how dare anybody call me an outcast? I am a fine, upstanding young citizen. I am a fine, upstanding senior adult. I am not an outcast. We can get very self-righteous and very angry, but folks, let's be honest again. It's easy for us, isn't it? To identify the people who don't belong. It's easy for us to look at our society and start seeing people. Like the drug addict. Or the drug dealer, the prostitute who sells herself or himself, the gambler who has thrown away his family's groceries for the month, the abuser, abusers of women, children, and men, the thief. He says, what's yours is mine. 
the adulterer. You get my point. The list could go on and on, folks. We can just start naming off. And we we would rarely express it verbally, I think. At least not in this place. Because people have this weird idea that you can't say certain things in a church building that you can say as soon as you walk out. Uh, we would not verbalize it, maybe. But there are whole lists of people that religious folks are ready to say deserve what they're going to get from God. They do not deserve God's grace. Well, folks, as far as I'm concerned, let us rejoice that Jesus the Christ is no respecter of persons. Again, when you come to the book of Luke and you read it carefully, you will see that God requires people, His people, to rejoice that salvation is coming to the outcasts. All those people who don't deserve it, God says, you who know Me, you should be rejoicing. The Word of God says, every time a sinner is saved, there's a party in heaven. And I have a sneaky suspicion that there are going to be a whole lot of Baptists who are going to be shocked out of their whatever we wear in heaven when you discover heaven's parties are a lot noisier than ours. Singing praises to God. God requires us. Robert Stein said it is a requirement of God that we rejoice when Salvation comes to outcasts. Now how can I say that with absolute certainty? How can I say that and declare that man is right? In the book of Luke, in the 15th chapter, there are three parables told. One is the most powerful illustrating this truth. Remember the story of the lost son? Father, give me my inheritance now. And he, he goes away and squanders it on riotous living. He finds himself feeding pigs and folks. That's about the lowest job a Jewish boy could have. And he says, I need to go home and become one of my father's servants. And he makes his way home. And his father is overjoyed. Does something no old Jewish man would do in public. He runs to his son. And he gives him a robe and a ring and shoes. And he's going to throw this huge party. An elder brother is off somewhere. And when he's coming, he says, what's all the ruckus? A servant says, your brother's come home. And elder brother says, praise God, I've been waiting for him forever. No. He wouldn't go in to the party. And his father comes out, hey, you need to come join us. And he says, why? I have been faithful to you. I have done everything you told me to do. I have worked my heart out for you, and you never even gave me a goat so I could have a barbecue with my friends. And I'm supposed to go meet him? You see, elder son could not understand what the father did. 
this boy, this boy long presumed dead by most, was alive. And he had come home. The brother couldn't celebrate. And the parable ends right there. Jesus doesn't finish the story. He doesn't say, and the brother repented and fell on his father crying and said, hey, I need to go see my brother. Just leaves it right there. One other thing about those parables, there's also the lost coin and the lost sheep. I remind you, the parable was told because there were religious people who were upset that sinners were coming to Jesus. All heaven rejoices when those despicable, horrible sinners find life in Christ. God moved to include those that so-called religious people rejected. And folks... When I say that God came in Christ to save outcasts, every one of us that have been saved are outcasts. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it does no good to compare my sin to yours and say, well, at least I'm better than you. I was a sinner without any hope. When the good news broke through my heart and Christ bid me come. So when we look out there at the world and all those people, we were one of those people. And God loved us. So today, if you never have, you can receive the greatest gift ever given. A gift given by a sovereign God who is calling you right now and He's been speaking to your heart perhaps for a long time. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter the life you've lived apart from God. Danny, He couldn't forgive you. You don't know what I've done. He, he can't. Oh, yes, He can. It doesn't matter the failures that continue to keep you on the outside. Christmas is about grace. The grace that God Himself put in motion through His guiding hand. And I invite you to come today in just a few moments and receive your King. If you will, make your way to And for those who might be here today who have forgotten that Christ came to save sinners, and you've looked at this world with animosity, you've looked at this world with incredible frustration, my question is, are you praying for those sinners? Are you asking God to move and show them life and light? Are you praying for all the outcasts in this world who are desperately needing someone to show the way and, 
And if you have forgotten, then I'm asking you today to come here at the altar. You can pray that God will bring his love to the very center of your being. That you will begin praying for this world like you haven't in a long time. And you will ask God to help you continue the message the angels gave. A Savior has been born. Christ the Lord. And for all of us, let us rejoice. Because God did the unexpected. Straight down the line. What no one would have been looking for. And I I chose this path today because we do know the story so well. And we forget how shocking it would be that God Almighty loves sinners. Let's have a time of rejoicing.